0: Y'all, welcome to BA in Science. I'm Maggie. That's Brenna. Hi, and we can't wait to tell you all about a badass human who also happened to do science. And of course, y'all know we're actually dealing with two-ish, more like five BAs in this episode. It's the last episode of the season, but we started it last week. This is part two. If you haven't listened to part two, you should go back and listen to part one about. You know, Adam and Jamie and the whole Mythbusters, all of that, because we're continuing that whole theme today. We've got some fun people to talk about, some awesome science kind of to round everything out for you. Before we get into that, let's do what we always do, which is weekly business. Please remember that wherever you listen, you should rate, review, subscribe, favorite, like, follow whatever our podcast. So you can hear about new episodes as they come out, because you're not going to hear from us now until September. And it also helps other people find us. So much appreciated if you would do that. If you need to tell us anything, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at BA and Science. Also, if you want to email us anything, we are at bainscience at gmail.com. And since the summer break is upon us, you definitely should go over to Patreon and subscribe over there so you can get access to all of those fun bonus episodes so, that you don't miss us too bad while we're on our break. So, any addendums from last week before we get started?
1: I don't have any.
0: I don't either. So, if there is anything, we'll just catch up at the next, next, beginning of next season. And that's fine. That because there wasn't an opportunity to guess this week because everybody already knows who we're talking about. So, let's take a break and then we will get into it. We left off last week with a promise to tell you more about some of the people involved in Mythbusters besides Adam and Jamie. So we are going to talk about the build team today because they made the show work really well for a really long time. Uh, And Brenna is going to tell us about the build team and, you know, some of what they did.
1: Yeah, so I have been tasked to fill y'all in on the build team, which is three other people. Um, that we haven't talked about yet, or maybe you've mentioned them, but we haven't really talked about them. So Mm -hmm. I'm just going to give you kind of short bios on them, let you know kind of what their background is and what they, from what I could tell, were mainly responsible for. But Maggie's the expert, so she can fill us in. Sure. So I'm going to start with Grant Imahara, because sadly, he is actually no longer alive. Yes, that's very sad. So Grant was born October 23rd, 1970 in LA, and he grew up out there, went to USC. He got his BS in electrical engineering. Mm-hmm. And then he started out after college as an engineer with the THX division of Lucasfilm. I don't really know what THX is, but I feel like it's a big deal. Sound. Oh. Okay. Among other things, but. Okay. And then he moved to the visual effects division which was known as ILM. I think we mentioned ILM last week, didn't we? We did. That's
0: where Adam worked. Adam worked right. Adam worked. Yeah, okay,
1: it. that's right. And so he worked on things like the three middle Star Wars movies. Well, I mean episodes 1 to 3, but like the three you know what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. We know what you mean. Okay. The Matrix movies, Galaxy Quest, which I, I don't think we said this last week, but that's underrated. That movie is highly underrated, it's but anyway, phenomenal. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And I think for the Star Wars films, one of his big contributions, he actually um, made models to update R2-D2, like the robot for those, the new, the, the, the middle set of Star Wars uh-huh. films. Yeah. I don't see specifically where he and Jamie had worked together before, but I read that he and Jamie were friends. Mm-hmm. So he asked him to join the show and help them out. Um, he was on battle bots or robot Mm -hmm. again whatever whatever variation of that show was but anyway just can I just I just want to say this again please stop screwing with the robots okay please please I I would consider it a personal favor at this point (laughs) like can we just stop having robots fight to the death because when the machines take over I just Again, it's not going to go well for us.
0: I don't want that to be on our list of sins. That's
1: all. (laughs) I just, if you're a Patreon subscriber, we are going to be talking about a lot of science I don't like. And just (laughs) stay tuned for that. So, yes, it'll involve a lot more of please stop messing with the robots. But yes. Grant's major role on the design team was to build robots needed for experiments, and I read that he also operated computers, electronics, needed anything they were testing that, like, required electrical type stuff. hmm Then Grant went on to be a part of a Netflix show called The White Rabbit Project, where I think I didn't, um, I, I've never seen it either. It's a Netflix special, but it was, I think, similar, because it was him and Tori and carry again on -hmm. this white rabbit project but um kind of a similar type of show in terms of they made stuff and did stuff or whatever okay in march of 2020 he built a fully animatronic baby yoda well i mean you know it's not baby yoda but we all call it we all know it yeah his name's grogu but it's not baby yoda okay Okay. um because he wanted to be able to take it to children's hospitals and cheer the kids up which, Which like, yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, so he originally had made a BB-8? Mm-hmm. whats the, Is that bb Yeah. Guys, I'm not, like, I've seen the Star Wars movies, but I have watched the shows, and I'm not the same kind of level of hardcore fan. But anyway, um, but because that rolled along, he didn't, he could tell that it was going to, like, pick up germs and stuff, and he didn't want to, like, roll that around in a hospital. Yeah. And so then he made the Baby Yoda. But- On July thirteenth, 2020, he died from an undiagnosed, ruptured brain aneurysm at the age of 49, leaving behind his fiance and his family.
0: Yeah, Um, it was
1: really, really sad. His family set up the Grant Amahara STEAM Foundation, which is designed to provide mentorship, scholarships, grants, etc., to kids for STEAM education, which is Mm -hmm. science, technology, I don't know, whatever.
0: Science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics. Yeah, there
1: you go. It used to be STEM. STEM. Yeah, now it's...
0: Well, and I think that it's because... It still is
1: STEM. We still talk about STEM because I'm in STEM, but I don't know. Well, but like, I really feel like the
0: Mythbusters are the reason we
1: call it STEAM because there's a lot of art to it. Yeah, maybe. So. So Carrie is the next one I will talk about. Meg, you'll have to maybe help fill in because I'm not quite as sure what her role on the show is, but okay. So... Carrie Elizabeth Byron was born in Santa Clara County, which is where I lived, um, on December 18th, 1974. I wonder if she was born at the same hospital as my first daughter. Oh, I don't know. It didn't say where. I mean, I guess I could, like, be creepy and try to find, like, you know, birth records and stuff. But Santa Clara County is where my kid was born. Anyway, um, she apparently grew up in Los Gatos because she graduated from Los Gatos High School before heading off to SFSU for film and sculpture. Okay. Fun fact about Los Gatos, I used to do Scottish Highland dance and I performed in one show that the school put on and it was in Los Gatos. So Nice. That's what I know about that place. Um anyway, it's May 1988 which is a fantastic period of time in literally history. like epically amazing yes maybe my favorite time ever in history
0: you get to celebrate um, it yearly in fact
1: you know um and she has her ba and instead of getting a job she decided to backpack across like south asia or something for a year okay um so then from what i read she basically just came back and bugged m5 industries for a job for forever until they finally said yes okay and she got a job with the build team And it wasn't until the second season that she started to get a larger on-screen role. Um, But from what I read, she maybe wasn't great initially on camera. Like, the nice way to put it, uh, one source was like, she was unaccustomed to showbiz or something like that. But she got her uh, BA in film and sculpture, so you'd think that she could handle it. But anyway
0: she wasn't bad on film like that's not Mm. that that that's not the point the point is that it was the early days of the show and nobody still knew what they were doing so no one had given her no one had given the build team a vibe to follow you know so like it wasn't like that
1: yeah i mean the one episode you had me watch it was like a bit later on i think and she Mm. was fine yeah um in march 2006 she married a guy named paul uric and in 2009 she missed the second half of the Mythbusters season because she was out having a baby she was um during her time on the show she did other things as well she hosted the show Head Rush on the Science Channel from 2010 to 2011 it was um geared more towards like um uh teens like I don't know young adult teen whatever um, and it was dealing with science related education stuff Mm-hmm. Um, and then, as I mentioned um with Grant and Tori, she would move over to the white Rabbit project okay in twenty nineteen she petitioned for separation from her hubby, and by march twenty twenty it appears the divorce went through. The most recent thing I saw she had done was host a show called Crash Test World, which aired in twenty twenty one I think on the science channel okay um one bizarre maybe you know I don't know. She makes paintings by igniting gunpowder or something like that? Yeah. Okay. I mean, that sounds kind of cool because, like, blowing up stuff is cool. And if you can make it art, like, that's cool.
0: They did a whole, uh, uh, the like, it was one of the very last myths that the Mythbusters did. It was, can you paint a room with explosives? And so they, both Adam and Jamie, had to figure out... A, a way to get the paint evenly distributed around a room without destroying the room uh spoiler alert
1: you can't there, you can't
0: you absolutely can't do that but you can create like amazing amazing art so what she does is not that but mm. it's in that genre
1: of mm. like creativity we'll say okay i mean she did what she got her ba what did i say art and film so like yeah. It's... I don't feel like she doesn't really do science. The one I watched, she just, like, made a horse model, a horse head model. Like, I don't know.
0: She did a lot of model making because, yeah, that's where her education was. Um, But she also got good at, okay, also, she's a terrible driver. She's the worst driver on the show. And, like, mm-hmm. and come at me. Like, I would say that to her face. I would say, Carrie, listen, you are an awful driver. Because they did a lot of driving myths. So whenever she was doing it, like, my husband and I cannot watch her. And a driving myth it's so bad she's terrible but she did a lot of model making she did a lot of fabricating she did a lot of little thought experiment stuff so (laughs) she by the end of the show she was more of a scientist than when she started the show for sure
1: okay um so yeah so that's carrie so then we'll talk about i i mean Again, I have one episode, but my favorite of these three people is Tori. Mm -hmm. So, Salvatore Tori, Paul Bellici, was born on October 30th, 1970 in Monterey, California, which I, side note, absolutely adore Monterey. Mm -hmm. If you go to California, you can skip a lot of things. Skip San Francisco. It's dirty and gross. Go to Monterey. It's beautiful. Uh, the Pebble Beach golf course is, like, down that way, the aquarium it's beautiful. Anyway, so Tori, from a young age, was into explosions and fire. Yeah. Uh, Apparently, for reasons that literally cannot be found anywhere, probably because there's not a good reason, his dad, he says, taught him how to make Molotov cocktails. Something to do. I mean, I don't know that's the best move on dad's part. Um, But it explains a lot. Because then later Tori made like a homemade flamethrower and accidentally set set part of his house on fire. Because of course you're going to set your house on fire if you're using a homemade flamethrower.
0: The words homemade and flamethrower didn't go together. I mean, there was an episode where Adam and Jamie made a flamethrower they had to get special permission because flamethrowers are illegal in california you can't Uh, have them but uh, they got special permission and they went to the bomb range and they had like the fbi like they had like authorities there and they couldn't uh, show like parts of how they made it i think on that one because uh, you can't you can't have them but they were trying uh, to figure out if you had a big enough there was this viral video where a guy had a fire extinguisher and he was shooting the fire extinguisher At a guy holding a flamethrower, and the idea was that those two energies would meet at and like not
1: like go one way or the
0: other. Um, So they
1: got like Harry Potter and Voldemort with their wands.
0: Yes, exactly like that. Mm -hmm. Exactly like that. So they had to make a flamethrower for that. But again, special permission, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So it's not that's not how it works. You can push it back somewhat, but. Mm -hmm. the flamethrower will win just so you know
1: well so then tory said about this whole incident with the flamethrower whatever it was as i put the gun down and i don't know what i was thinking but maybe if i spray more gas it'll douse the flames so i sprayed more and the flames got bigger and finally i went and got the hose and put the fire out but i've been doing this kind of stuff since i was a kid and now i get paid for it like when he was later interviewed about it but yeah i mean (laughs) i don't i don't know um, but then things took a more serious turn, because when he was 19, he was almost arrested for making and blowing up a pipe bomb on his family's property. Again, I lack details as to why he made a pipe bomb, other than, like, I don't know, he probably was just like, well, let me see if I can, you yes, know? Yes,
0: he's very much a, I wonder what would happen if I, like, you know what I think I could do before I figure that out? He's very much that kind
1: of. I mean, I can't even expect that his parents were mad because his dad taught him to make Molotov cocktails. Like, yeah,
0: it's more illegal than you might think is the (laughs) problem with that.
1: Yeah. So so the cop that was uh, in charge of what, when this went down, he actually basically let him off with a warning, but was like, "Mm, hey, maybe you could um, find a more constructive way to you know, indulge in this passion of blowing stuff up other than making illegal pipe bombs and blowing them up. Cause... Can
0: I take you to the bomb squad for the county?
1: Can we not just do this for fun? So he went to S.F.S.U. as well, film school, um, and graduated in 1994. And he started working with Jamie at M5 Industries after graduating. And he started out doing pretty menial stuff around the place. But he moved him, himself up pretty quickly Um, because of his talent his work and and so forth so then he started working at ilm Mm -hmm. um, along with these other people Mm -hmm. and his work there involved model building sculpting and painting Mm -hmm. Um, he worked on galaxy quest as well the matrix movies some other films whatever Um, one place one source i read said that he was the one that convinced Grant to join Mythbusters, even though, like, earlier I was like, oh, Jamie can, I don't know, somebody convinced, look, they all knew each other, besides Carrie, it sounds like, but they all kind of, like, knew each other, so Mm -hmm. I don't know, some way or another, they all ended up there. So in 2003, he started working behind the scenes on Mythbusters, and again, it wasn't until the second season that he's, you know, they have this, like, build team that was Mm -hmm. um, on camera, and then it was the third season where they finally got, like, you know on-screen credit or whatever right he did some more of the dangerous crazy stuff on the show from what i can tell like a few that i read about included you know testing out the myth that a human tongue will instantly stick to a frozen pole he did that yes okay and for one myth they were testing he fell off a roof and i think he was like injured pretty seriously i mean i mean it didn't it wasn't
0: great wasn't yeah. It was it was, yeah. it wasn't one of his better moments.
1: Oh yeah. Okay.
0: Was that when they were testing the piano myth?
1: I don't remember. I d I, I didn't remember. see. I don't the, know the, if it referenced the myth,
0: the myth was if you drop a piano on a house, what will happen? I don't remember the, <laughs> the details of it, but it involved a crane and several pianos and I don't know why you need to test that myth, but okay. Well, if you have a house that's built to proper building code, if you drop a piano through it will it bounce off or will it go through the roof because roofs are built really sturdy and you know so i think the upright piano kind of bounced off Uh i think they had another one that did go through anyway
1: okay well he did other things during mythbusters and after mythbusters still in keeping with blowing stuff up being in being dangerous and so forth he had a youtube channel called blow it up which is just him blowing different stuff up. That's all it is. It's yeah. Like 12 episodes of him just blowing stuff up. And he was on the White Rabbit project again with Tor- or with um Carrie and Grant. Recently, I saw he's in a show with Richard Hammond from Top Gear. Yeah. Called The Great Escapists. I uh-huh. haven't watched it. Have you? I've seen parts of
0: it because he's also okay. doing a show right now that's it's Mythbusters but cars only. Oh okay. Did you see anything about that? It's brand new. No. Like brand oh. new. Just got had its first season because he's got a this girl who's a mechanical engineer and this guy who's a, who does car stuff and then he knows everything about I mean he's destroyed so many cars an unbelievable amount of cars this man has destroyed. So anyway, they do they do just car myths mythbuster style. It's very cool. Okay. But that but that's probably because of the top gear connection
1: yeah i don't know but um i like richard hammond too so anyway i'll, I'll add it to my watch list um it's, it's good top it's worth gear it. guys are hilarious hilarious side note i don't care what you think of jeremy clarkson because i don't know if you have an opinion of him but he says some like super outrageous things sometimes but uh his show called clarkson's farm on amazon prime is compelling TV like I want to move to England have a farm have bees have chickens like like that's what I want to do after I watch that show it's phenomenal and if you I haven't watched it you adding haven't. it to my I'm adding it to my watch list it's, it's so far it's not safe for kids because there's a lot of language because it's Jeremy Clarkson it's, but it's and bees I mean there's bees there's chickens there's he gets sheep he gets I Oh my gosh, just it's so funny. You guys, I'm excited. You have to watch it anyway. Okay, so in 2014, Tori competed with um, I don't know if you know who Dead Dead Mouse, I think you say it Dead Mouse, you do say a
0: Dead Mouse. Okay, it's Dead Mouse 5, but yes, (laughs) (laughs)
1: that's what it looks like, but it's Dead Mouse. Uh, in some, there's like this thing called Gumball 3000, it's a 3000 mile like celebrity motor rally on -hmm. public roads thing, but he did that, so I thought that was kind of cool. Um, he co-hosted The Explosion Show on the Science Channel. Yeah. Um, and then in 2010, when he wasn't filming for Mythbusters, he went to Haiti working with Life-Giving Force, which was a non trying to help provide, like, clean water to villages and stuff. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. In 2020, Tori married his longtime girlfriend, Erin Bothamley. I don't know hopefully and you can actually but if you search their two names you can find their wedding webpage. like you know how we all put together our own like yes not or minted or whatever websites like they have one so like search it and it will come up and it's like Aaron and Tori dot, minted dot com. I don't know anyway yeah google it it's cute that's so fun I right know because they're like normal like just like regular normal people having a wedding yeah? Yeah. having a wedding so yeah That's kind of the rundown on the build team and very briefly their roles because, again, I don't know. I think it probably changed over time, but I think it seems like they started by helping Jamie and Adam, but then they kind of migrated to their own myths to work on separately from Jamie and Adam. I don't know. Yeah, it
0: started out where they would, there were myths that were just bigger and they needed more hands Mm, to do whatever and so they started with three of them but and and this is because producers are involved and people who understand tv and all of that their ratings were good people responded positively Mm -hmm. to the way that Tory grant and carrie interacted with each other and with the mythbusters i'm sure Mm -hmm. that was a big part of it and i think that they realized that if they let them work on some of these things then it would give more time for adam and jamie to work on some of the bigger stuff And, and that kind of, and the stuff that they had, you know, their, their own more experience with. So Mm -hmm. I think that was part of it too, but they, but they were good TV. I mean, Carrie, Tori and Grant are entertaining TV all the times because Tori got hurt a lot of other times. It was always funny. (laughs) It was, if they, if they put it on camera, it's because he didn't get hurt that bad and it was funny, So you know, and carrie provided the girl energy and especially after she had her baby she provided the mom energy Mm. so she was a really good foil to them and grant was painfully painfully nerdy and so they made fun of him a lot for that which was always entertaining and it was just they just were really good together i think that the the three of unlike Adam and Jamie I think that the three of them were actually pretty good friends. Mm. So and you know I, I understandably because they did the show together for of the 14 se- seasons or whatever they did it for 11 of them because they the last two seasons the build team was they 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 got finished before the show finished. So
1: yeah, for some reason that I couldn't find in 2014 they fired them. So
0: yeah, I, that's murky too. I nobody really really knows why that happened. Maybe it was just that they wanted the show to go in a different direction or something. But I think it was a. I mean, I missed them. I like. I liked. I mm. liked the work that they did. They did. They did cool stuff. So you know.
1: Okay. Well, that's what I got.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's that's pretty thorough rundown of uh, the build team and what they did. So. Should we take a break and then I can get into the science, the actual science of MythBusters because there's so much of it. Yeah. Okay, Brenna, we need to take a minute to tell everybody about Proton Guru and the MCAT ladder.
1: Yeah, we definitely do. It's an MCAT test prep program like no other. MCAT prep can be super expensive, but this is prepared by a group of passionate faculty who really want to keep costs low. The big thing about the
0: program, though, is how good it is, with really excellent concept explanations and visual learning, thousands of practice
1: questions with explanations, and full MCAT
0: practice tests.
1: If you've ever looked into the MCAT, you've probably looked around for complete programs that are made by experts. These courses cost thousands of dollars, which make it super impractical for the average person.
0: MCAT Ladder, though, has over 100 full scholarships available now for both self-paced programs you can start anytime, as well as for intensive and boot camp type programs
1: with dates throughout the year. Right. The whole idea behind Proton Guru and the MCAT Ladder is high quality MCAT prep that's accessible to more people, not just those who can afford thousands of dollars. So go on over to ProtonGuru.com
0: and check out all the amazing stuff that's there. With MCAT Ladder, it's all about reaching down to help others climb up, which is a very badass thing to do. Let's finally talk science. Finally. The Mythbusters were, at at the heart of it all, scientists, and it was a science show, among other things. I mean, it was entertaining and all that, sure, but there is so much that I want to cover under the category of the science of Mythbusters. They did more for the popularization of science in the modern age, like the TV age, than anybody. And I will not change my mind on that. You can't convince (laughs) me that there's anybody else that did what they did. What I'm going to do is I'm going to start by walking you through an episode of the show. And Last episode, I focused kind of broadly on what the show tried to do and how it worked over time. But today, I'm going to kind of put the episodes under a microscope so I'm going to go through a typical episode format first and then some of the hallmarks of each episode and I'm going to do that in the context of the scientific method because the show did an excellent job of demonstrating how the scientific method should work at its best Um, Then I'm going to talk about some of the cool stuff that was part of the Mythbusters, as much as Adam, Jamie, and the Build Team were. And then finally, I'm going to do an overview of some of the myths they did in various science categories, because some of them just deserve to be mentioned. And I'll talk about the science that goes with those, so little, little vignettes there. Okay. So every episode starts with a myth or observation, and the show does such a good job of following the scientific method in this way because the first step of science is that you notice something anything adam and jamie and the bill team got really good at telling a story so you would start the show it's common to hear them say you know how when you and then they describe a scenario that we're all aware of but maybe you haven't thought about so like in the first two seasons You had observations and stories like you know how you're not allowed to toss a penny off the empire state building well they say that if a penny hits you that was falling from that height it will kill you that will it uh no okay and we know this because remember adam let jamie shoot him with a staple gun modified to shoot pennies and it didn't kill him because they had gotten a human skull and fired it at the skull and nothing Mm -hmm. happened Mm because it was about figuring terminal velocity. Mm. So yes. Um, Another story was, you know how mirrors reflect light and if that light hits something, it gets hot. What if you had a bunch of mirrors focused on one point? Could you make a solar death ray? (laughs) Also no, but you could burn a ship. You could put holes in a ship. If it's, was still for long enough it's not a great it's not a great solution but you know <laughs> so any good scientific journey starts with something you can notice or something someone said they noticed. and because the MythBusters often had fans write in and tell them some kind of mm. wild something that happened and then they would just go and test it out eventually they started doing viral videos they would go to youtube they would see is this you know edited or is this a real video what mm-hmm. can we say about it so that that happened a lot in the the later seasons so they would go test it out yes but the testing process was very thorough and it may have seemed random at times but it was actually pretty well thought out they they planned this a lot again especially as the myths got bigger and safety was an issue they they took it really seriously this part of the scientific method where you would do some research and form your question is kind of where they would land next on the show for example the myth that was tested in one episode was that if you're being shot at can you dive underwater and then avoid getting shot will water save you you know because you see that sometimes like the hero is in the water and someone's Mm -hmm. spraying bullets and he just dives under and the bullets don't hit him and he's fine like really you would kind of discuss the myth because when you discuss that myth what are the real questions that are there because it's not just can I dive underwater and not get hit by a bullet what's really going on there because first what happens to a bullet when it hits the water and second what's the slowest a bullet can be going and still harm you so you got to answer you got you got to figure out the component parts on another episode the myth was that a piece of straw could be blown through or into a tree during a hurricane. That's a myth that lots of people have heard. Like the wind was so strong that the they had pieces of grass and straw just going right through the trees. That kind of thing through them mm-hmm. or into them, like sticking. Oh, oh. Them, right, like the the trunk of a tree. Oh, so the questions they had to answer with that myth again weren't as simple as trying to just shoot straw into a tree although that was part of it first how fast can you get straw to move in hurricane force winds and what kind of tree are we talking about is it an oak tree is it a palm tree turns out palm works best
1: Hmm.
0: what kind of straw are we using because there's lots of different kind of grass are we talking about the grass that you clip in your yard or is there like industrial strength, straw, and some like I don't I don't know what they got in Florida. You know, these are questions you have to answer. And they always did a really good job of breaking the overall myth into smaller, very scientific questions. And so it had the natural effect of making the myth more manageable, but it also made it easy for non science people to understand. Like the entire show was written at about I would say, an eighth grade level, which is ideal in terms of your audience, because then you can get kids, you can get adults, you can get mm-hmm. people who have lots of education, people who don't have as much education. It There was an accessibility to that kind of, to that style. And it won't put you on mental overload, but you do need to engage your brain to follow it. One of the best things they did on the show that really made it a serious scientific endeavor was the blueprints scenes. So once the stage was set for the myth, we'd get like a little animation or something. And I think it was Adam who did the drawing, but I can't find that info anywhere. Uh, But there would be a sheet of blueprint paper and a hand holding a marker. And while the narrator talked through the process that would be going on, the hand would illustrate it with diagrams. And the whole effect would be a very thorough explanation of the science behind the experiments or stunts or explosions or whatever. The episode called Birds in a Truck is an excellent example of this. So let me set the scene for the myth for you. There's a guy who drives this truck and he drives it over this bridge every day. But before he drives it over the bridge, he gets out, goes to the back and bangs on the sides for a minute and then gets back in and then drives across the bridge. Well, the turns out that there are birds in the back of his truck, and he wants them flying when he goes over the bridge because it will make the truck weigh less. Is that really true? Like if you have the birds sitting versus flying, does it make does it change the weight of the truck? But why do you need it to be lighter? Well, because the bridge has a weight restriction, and he's over. So he just makes the birds fly, and then he doesn't wreck the bridge.
1: Is this like a real life thing that someone said that they do or they're just like making this up?
0: I think it was a story that someone told. Again, like word of mouth story that someone
1: told. Um How a does your talk. truck of chickens max out the weight limit for a bridge? What kind of bridge is this? Like a wooden rickety. covered bridge in yes. the middle of nowhere? Yes, clearly rickety. Yeah. Maybe don't. Okay.
0: Anyway. But, but none of that matters, because what does matter is that, so you've got the narrator talking over this animation that's going on, okay? And, he, and the narrator says, so, the question is, will a container of flapping feathery friends lighten the load? For years, this simple concept has had big brain boffins baffled. On canvas, it's a conundrum that's frazzled physicists, not to mention the furor on the fan site. So while this narration is going on, there's a graphic showing a truck like with kind of a cutaway to the Mm -hmm. inside of the truck. And it's full of birds. And the writing on the drawing said Newton's third law for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Mm -hmm. So if the birds are flying, does the truck weigh less than if the birds are sitting down? So they talk about, you know, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction if they're flying you know are they creating enough thrust that it's going to be the same are they staying in the air what happens when they land it's this whole it's this whole this whole thing
1: and that is that chickens or turkeys well they actually
0: when they tested the myth they actually used
1: pigeons no one has a truck of pigeons if someone is carrying a truck of pigeons somewhere i have a lot of other questions
0: well sh- well maybe they were carrier pigeons back when those existed i don't know it doesn't okay. matter because they just needed a bird and pigeons are good because when they land they land heavy okay right so and and they're i substantial. Don't know they're substantial like well you don't like that people know you don't like birds so this whole this whole discussion is kind of pointless with you but it doesn't matter because they they made this thing to catch pigeons which was ridiculous and then they had this container where they had these because they didn't want to hurt the birds so they had this shelf that the birds could sit on that they could pull out from under them so they'd have to fly and instead of landing on the bottom they had these swirling like kind of fan blades but they were soft so they didn't hurt anybody that would keep the pigeons flying and it worked really well And they could test it. And no, it turns out that because of Newton's third law, yes, it still weighs the same. It doesn't matter if they're flying or if they're sitting. That's not how that works. Do you know
1: what the best outcome of this myth would have been? Is if while testing this, the whole truck crashed into the water beneath it and all the pigeons were dead. Okay, that's (laughs) the worst thing
0: ever that could have happened. And that is they didn't didn't put them in an actual truck because they put them in a container that they could weigh. It doesn't matter anyway 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 so that's kind of like a short example of a narration but as the show went on there were longer and more involved blueprint segments and throughout each episode when there was science content the narrator would come on and explain it they would explain exactly what was going on and why it happened and the scientific concept behind it and so it made the science as i said accessible which was honestly important to the success of the show so once all that setup is done then, and, and the main scientific concepts are listed out, they can kind of decide what experiments to set up, like how to test it, that will help them kind of test the concepts and answer the questions. And this is the part we all come to science for. Like experimenting is typically the most exciting part of science. As much as analyzing results is great, we come here for the experiment, like to try stuff. One of the best examples of an experiment with as many variables controlled as possible was when they tested the fireball stun gun myth. Because when you're setting up an experiment, you have to control as much of it as possible. Because if you have a lot of different variables, which are the things that could change in an experiment, right? If you have a bunch of different variables and you're not controlling them, those things could be contributing to a change in results, which makes it hard to figure out what's actually going on so the most the best experiments have the most variables controlled and when you are repeating the experiment you would change one at a time of those variables not a hundred at once right so on an episode of CSI because Adam and Jamie were everywhere like they made a cameo on CSI and it was Mm -hmm. it was in this this myth They had shown a flannel shirt catching on fire after it had been sprayed by pepper spray and then tased. Wait, what? Say this again. So there's a flannel shirt on a dummy. Okay. And it has been sprayed with pepper spray. Okay. And then a taser is fired at it. So if you're a cop and you are trying to bring someone down, Uh you don't, you shouldn't start with you know a gun you start with other things so you're gonna pepper spray them first if that doesn't work you're gonna tase them but what happens with the pepper spray and the taser and the shirt and like the the story was that it had caught fire and this is something that could happen okay so at its heart this is a myth about starting a fire for fire you need oxygen a spark and fuel. so oxygen wasn't an issue because it was like out in the air that wasn't part of the that wasn't a variable that needed to be controlled the oxygen was a part of the story so after testing the taser they could see that the spark wouldn't be a problem either they had a spark because that's a taser makes a spark Mm -hmm. so now it's a fuel thing the thing that they have to test is the fuel now the fuel could be the pepper spray or the fuel could be the shirt, or it could be both. What's gonna burn? <laughs> so a combination of the most flammable of each of those would give the myth the best chance of being confirmed. So you have to find the most flammable fabric and the most flammable pepper spray. It Can you even, is pepper spray even flammable? We don't know. So they tested five different kinds of pepper spray and found one that was very flammable. And I think it was because they used alcohol it was Mm. alcohol was part of what helped aerosolize it and accelerate Mm. it right and then they tested various fabrics commonly used to make flannel shirts so acrylic and cotton and all these other and they found the one that burned the best because some of those fabrics will go up like whoa (laughs) so they dressed a mannequin in the winning fabric sprayed it with the winning pepper spray and then fired a taser at it Mm -hmm. and it for sure caught fire (laughs) so and their approach to experiment was it like
1: doused
0: in pepper spray Uh -uh. Hmm. no it was it was it was a typical they didn't have to like soak the thing in pepper spray and then put it on a mannequin like they fired the pepper spray at it they fired the taser and Hmm. and they're yeah so that that myth actually was very interesting it was a whole that interesting that episode was all all very interesting um, but their approach to experiments was often like this they really did try to see each variable and control as many of them as necessary and as possible because sometimes you can't if you're working with birds with pigeons you can't necessarily control that variable as well as you might like you can do what you can but at the end of the day you know it's hard now if the fans thought that they missed something they frequently wrote into the Mythbusters and then Adam and Jamie would address the fans' concerns. They did a lot of Myth Revisits where someone had written in and said I noticed when you did this, you didn't think about blah 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 blah. I think you should retry it, considering that whatever. So, Because hmm. again, interesting, lots of science people would watch and sometimes it made a difference. Sometimes the revisit was worth it because it did change the result. Like wow, if we had considered that in the first place, we would have hmm. known you know, it would have gone this way. And sometimes it just made the treatment of the myth feel more thorough because sometimes they would do a myth and you get to the end and they were like, so it's busted. And I'm thinking like, no way, that's not, you didn't bust that myth. I don't, I don't buy it. So they would go revisit it with a more thorough treatment of some of those, more more thorough control of some of the variables. And then it was like, okay, you've exhausted all of it. I believe you now. So, Hmm. So a major part of the scientific method, the next major part, is the data collection and analysis. And hence the title of our episode. Adam famously said once, the difference between science and screwing around is writing stuff down. And that's absolutely true. You can immediately, that was, because that's the whole idea behind taking kids to a theme park, that you take your physics class to a theme park at the end of the school year. And your Hmm. physics teacher is like, here's a worksheet, write some stuff down, now it's science. But meanwhile, if you weren't doing that, it would just be like a fun day. So writing it down makes it more credible. Hmm. The MythBusters ran trials, made charts and graphs, crunched data, drew pictures, all of it, all of the ways that you can collect and analyze data, they kind of did it. And they made a point to talk through the data and what it means because that is a really important scientific skill. The best examples of some of the best examples of that are the fuel efficiency myths. They did a lot of these myths. Mm. There are a million ways that people have come up with to use gas more efficiently in their cars. And one episode tested a bunch of hypermiling myths. I did not know what hypermiling was before I had read about, uh, like before I had seen this myth. But hypermiling is when you take measures to maximize your car's fuel efficiency. So you might drive at a slower speed on the highway because that saves gas, theoretically. Uh, Your starts and your stops are going to be very smooth. You're not going to, like, punch on the brakes. You're not going to accelerate too fast. Or you'll turn off the engine at red lights and then restart your car when the light changes. So the build team was primarily testing this set of myths. And so they measured miles per gallon used with each hypermiling technique. And then you get to see all the data collected, because there is a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And so we got to see them work with the data and draw conclusions. And there's spreadsheets involved and there's math involved and figuring out what it's really saying and is this effective and does it work. So, for again, for a lot of people, learning to interpret data is an acquired skill. So, the fact that the viewer gets to see people work with that data is kind of helpful, especially for students who are trying to develop that skill because when you watch someone do it, it helps you get better at it yourself, right? So finally, once you've got through all of that, you draw your conclusions. And on Mythbusters, the conclusions came in three varieties, confirmed, plausible, and busted. And I did detail what those meant last episode, but I've got a little bit more on that because sometimes there was more to it. Okay. If the myth was confirmed, that means that they were able to recreate or closely recreate the myth's reported outcome using a close approximation or identical approximation to the conditions so someone told the story they replicated the story it turned out how the story said it was whatever usually if there is recorded evidence of it happening that can be verified then it was confirmed but sometimes they confirmed things that you know they were surprised about Um, if the if it's a movie myth then they recreate it with the same circumstances that kind of thing now, plausible has a lot of variations, but the bottom line here is that the myth could be recreated, but there was a small modification to the circumstances, like the myth worked, but not for the reasons they thought it would. Because sometimes you prove something and and the reasoning behind it is totally different, which scientists, you know, don't hate, but it can mess you up if you're doing like a dissertation. So, which they never did. Um, Or the circumstances are so unlikely that while it's not impossible that the situation could happen, it's like improbable so and then finally there's busted and most of the myths fall into this category if the myths results cannot be replicated under the described parameters it's busted but busted myths lead to replicating the results which is where you get to see just what it would take to make the myth work And that's usually the funnest part of the show because that's where the explosions happen and the Mm -hmm. ridiculous amounts of C4 are involved. It's great. The unofficial Mythbusters motto could be, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. So, like I said, they would just... When they were doing a... There's a myth, and it's not a myth, it's true, that if coffee creamer lights gets set on fire, let powdered coffee... Creamer stuff. Yeah, that it will cause a huge fireball. Yeah, of course burned. it will. Yeah, it, yeah, of course it will. So, but they were trying to figure out how big they could get that to be. They needed a bomb range for that, and it was a column of fire. It was amazing. Again, just if you just look up Mythbusters explosions, you will have videos for days. They did almost three thousand myths.
1: Oh, geez. over their
0: time in very like on shows and on all the shows and certain episodes, whatever, all of it told over 3,000 different myths. So almost 3,000 every myths. so. So that's how the scientific method kind of works for the Mythbusters. Okay, so outside of that, there are some show staples that you can reasonably expect to see in a lot of episodes and it's scientific stuff, so I'm gonna mention them. First is Buster himself. Buster is a crash test dummy that Adam Mm -hmm. purchased all the way in the first season to stand in for a human at the center of whatever myth was being tested because sometimes like if you're going to have someone drop a cigarette into a (laughs) chemical toilet to see if it explodes you don't want an actual person doing that you want to know what happens to the person but you don't want to put a person in that situation
1: why is this a thing to test why wouldn't you just be like you know what you shouldn't do drop anything into a chemical toilet but again, th- this
0: is why you're not a MythBuster because the MythBusters are like, what would happen if I? That's the whole point of this show. So, so sometimes, and like most of the time, it's not safe for the humans to test these myths because, yeah, you could die. Because the because the myth was like, usually the last sentence of most myths is, and he survived, which that's the mythological part. Like you're not going to survive that; you're probably going to die. So, and. Adam was almost always willing to put his body on the line for science, as was Tori. And Jamie actually very rarely wanted to. It is irresponsible to put someone, as I said, in the path of an explosion, like with C4. So bear in mind that a crash test dummy is made to withstand somewhat significant force, like, you know, from a car wreck. Uh, But the Mythbusters subjected him to a lot more than he was designed for, leading to all kinds of crazy injuries like limbs coming off and stuff occasionally they would modify buster to suit a myth like give him a claw hand so he could grip something that was going to catch fire they even redesigned and rebuilt him at least once they used poplar wood for bone because it breaks under Mm -hmm. similar conditions to that of when a human bone breaks his new skin was made of silicone and it was the kind that they use in animatronics so it was really good And they used many different human analogs. They would sometimes get pigs because for biological reasons, they are um, in some ways similar to humans. But they didn't call those pigs Buster. There was was only one Buster. And if they used like ballistics gel, that wasn't Buster either. Buster Mm -hmm. was Buster. So let me talk about ballistics gel real quick since I mentioned it. It was actually another staple on the show. It was in like probably... two two thousand of the three thousand myths like it's a testing medium that was originally designed to show the effects of bullet wounds in animal muscle tissue it's made from a specific kind of gelatin and is mostly water since humans are also mostly water if you fire a bullet into it the result is reasonably similar to when a bullet is fired into a human Hmm. so when the mythbusters were testing various gun myths throughout the years and they tested a lot of gun myths Ballistics gel was the best thing they could use to replicate the result they wanted without having to shoot a person, obviously.
1: <laughs> obviously.
0: Yeah, so there were times when they used ballistics gel for things other than testing bullet myths. Uh, for example, there was a myth about a ceiling fan decapitating someone. So they made a mold of Adam's head. And this is where, like, all of their special effects, ILM, film school, art school stuff came in because you have to make a cast and you have to do the mold and you have to do all that stuff so they made a mold of adam's head out of ballistics gel and then they used a pig spine and then latex tubes filled with red dye which is like the fake blood to make a a bunch of human head analogs with like an actual spine in it because if you're going to test decapitation it's not does the head come off it's can you cut through the spine so again figuring out what really the question is is important and they did discover that a ceiling fan will give you horrific injuries, but decapitation will not be one of
1: them. Hmm. Yeah.
0: One other really important tool that the Mythbusters used like, in every episode was a high-speed camera, which is a terrible name for it because it actually shows everything in extra slow motion. High-speed refers to the speed at which it's taking the pictures, not the speed at which you're watching the result. So a standard video camera, for example, captures images at like 30 pictures or 30 frames per second, mm-hmm. FPS is what you'd hear. A high-speed camera captures over 250 frames per second. Um, and this isn't a great way to describe it. And some of you are gonna be cringing hard when I say it this way. But if you're using this kind of camera, it basically captures moving images with exposures of less than one 1,000th of a second. And then when you string all of those pictures together, you get a motion picture, basically. Okay. And if you play them slowly, if you play each of those frames like like at plain speed, it's slow. You can see detail that you never would otherwise have seen because it's happening simply too fast for the human eye mm-hmm. or a regular camera. For example, they were trying to see if a sneeze can leave a person's mouth at hurricane force speeds. We're talking 100 miles an hour. Like how fast is a sneeze going when it leaves your face? And so they did all this fun stuff. Like they would have a little bit of dye in their mouth and then they would use like this white pepper, like rub the white pepper under their nose to like force a sneeze. They, They tested all kinds of these to make themselves sneeze. And then they would sneeze in front of a a backdrop where you could see the, like, red droplets coming out. And you could use the camera and some math to figure out how fast were those droplets going, the droplets of dye from the sneeze. Okay. So you're actually, you're not sneezing at 100 miles per hour like you would in a hurricane. It's actually a little bit less than 40 miles per hour. Mm. So... Yeah, so busted, but interesting. So your sneeze is going about 40 miles an hour. If it was in a school zone, it would get a ticket. (sighs) Okay, so as you can see from the handful of myths that I've mentioned, we get a wide variety of the types of science on Mythbusters. And so I'm gonna wrap up this part today by highlighting kind of the, the best myths in certain scientific categories. I'm going to start with the biggest branches of science, and then I've got just, like, some real quick ones in special, like, special areas. So, biology first. The myth I want to highlight is a myth from the movie Titanic. If you haven't seen it, and you intend to, like, what are you waiting for? But I'm about to spoil the ending, so just skip ahead if that's a problem for you. At the end, Rose and Jack, two main characters, are floating on a door in the freezing Atlantic Ocean because mm-hmm. the Titanic sank. Right. Right. Rose is actually the one on the door, and uh-huh. Jack is in the water. And is there Ro- any reason why he couldn't also get on the door? That's what we're going to discuss. Okay. Okay. Rose is urging Jack to get on the door, but he says there's no room, or if he got on, it would the door wouldn't hold them both, so he dies. Very sad. <laughs> so people everywhere insist that the door was big enough and would have held both of them safely, and Jack could have lived. So the coolest part of this myth is how they tested the hypothermia angle, because that's what's really go that's really what's going on here. Would the, the idea is that Rose was on that door for an hour uh-huh. with wet clothes uh-huh. in the freezing cold air in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh-huh. Would she even have survived for an hour on that door, whether Jack did or not? How long would Jack have lasted in the water or would he freeze to death before, before that rescue? Is that true? So, and, and can they both fit on the door and would it hold them? The, these are all things, elements of this myth to test. Did he freeze to death or did he let go? He had, he was, he had frozen to death. And, oh. and so he, he was like, couldn't hold on anymore. Okay. Okay, so Jamie created a special human analog for this that they later called Thermoboy. He used ballistics gel and heat coils that he calibrated to have a regulated 98.6 degree Fahrenheit body temperature. So hypothermia is the condition where your body loses heat faster than you can warm yourself back up. So your body temperature drops. If your temperature gets below 95 degrees Fahrenheit, that's hypothermia. But like if your body temp drops all the way to less than... 82.4 degrees Fahrenheit, your heart will stop and you'll die. So Thermoboy would be covered in wet clothing and then left to float on a scale replica door in the proper temperature setting and see what happens. Did he become hypothermic and die? How long did it take, et cetera? They were also going to put him in the water hanging off the door, a la Jack, Uh to see what would happen. Again, when does hypothermia happen? How long does it take? All of that. So when Thermoboy was in the water, he was hypothermically dead within 51 minutes. Hmm. So, yeah, they created a human analog that could become hypothermic. Hmm. That's amazing biological science. OK, so well short of the 63 minute mark, Jack would have died from hypothermia had he stayed in the water. Hmm. On the door. Boy did last did not die lasted to the 63 minute mark but just barely so Mm -hmm. overall it is plausible that you could survive if you were on the door so yeah they essentially built a working circulatory system Hmm. it's completely badass but also they put eventually they just put both adam and jamie on the door to see mm-hmm. if it would hold them and mm-hmm. what they actually did was they ended up taking off one of their life jackets and putting it under the door mm-hmm. to give it more buoyancy and mm-hmm. then it would hold both of them mm-hmm. but james cameron who they actually like had asked him because they know him like mm-hmm. that they're in the business he was like no jack had to die so you know the the, the prop was you know he had to die that was part of the story so Hmm. anyway so that was one of the coolest and they used that they used thermal boy later too to test the star wars myth that if you were stuffed inside a tauntaun you could survive the temperatures of Hoth. and it turns out yes Hmm. i believe i believe that one was a yes uh if if i'm wrong someone will correct me but i'm pretty sure the answer was yes to that Hmm. so let's let's move to chemistry Now, I know you're thinking I'm going to pick a myth with, like, actual chemicals, but that's not the direction that I'm going. This is one of the best myths, literally, of all time. This was one of my favorite episodes ever. Okay. There's a story that this guy is told to clean out a tanker car, like you'd find as part of some trains, like the cylinder-looking one tanker train car. He uses a steam cleaner to do it, which will obviously make the temperature of the tank car rise. But then it starts to rain, so he seals the tank car because he doesn't want to fill with water, and then he goes to lunch. The rain is cooler than the tank car, and it causes the steam to contract, and the tank car implodes, like crushes in on itself. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about the science here. Now, I've done a proof of this concept in my own kitchen for homeschool science lesson. You put a teeny bit of hot water in a Pepsi can. And then you hold the can in a pan of boiling water for like a minute. And then once the can gets hot, I flipped it over and plunge it into an ice bath and the can instantly crushes. It is really cool. The kids loved it. And you can do that too. Like, and you can find on YouTube like how to do it, and the science behind it. But I'm gonna tell you that right now. Adam and Jamie did a small scale test of this, and it to- it totally does work. You can and this this is a thing that will work. But why? Well. Once the vessel, let's say the tank car is capped, it's full of steam and air, but it's rapidly cooling once it's not being actively heated. Mm -hmm. When molecules are warm, they move around a lot and very fast and they take up a lot of space. When they cool down, they take up less space, which means the pressure goes down. Now, don't Mm -hmm. forget, thanks to the atmosphere, there is a certain amount of constant air pressure pushing down on us at all times. When you have an area of low pressure and an area of high pressure, the area will move toward the low pressure to equalize that pressure differential, because otherwise you're going to have a vacuum, a place where there's no air, and that's a thumbs down. We don't don't do that on Earth. Theoretically, the tank car wouldn't be strong enough to hold up under the full force of atmospheric pressure on the outside and an area of low pressure on the inside that's what we're trying to to test here because we know that that's true if you use a steel barrel or a pepsi can or a you know whatever other kind of metal thing so adam and jamie set up a decommissioned tank car on an unused piece of railroad track in oregon Mm -hmm. which was the hardest part they had wanted to do this myth from their first season but finding a decommissioned actually two decommissioned tank cars I think they ended up needing that would work and a safe place to do this it was it it was a it was a miracle that this myth even happened like they they drove home the point that this was not something they thought that they were going to ever be able to do Hmm. so they 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 set up the experiment they set up the conditions whatever and try as they might they couldn't get the tank car to collapse So while it worked really well on small scale, it's more difficult with a full-size tank car because those are engineered not to fail. Mm. So technically the myth was busted, but I think I fell in more of the category of plausible because if you have an old one or one where the safety features have been compromised or whatever, then you will crush one. And they did prove that. Mm-hmm. I'm posting a picture for this episode of them in front of a crushed tank car because when you compromise the integrity of the, like put a big old dent in it, mm-hmm. then it will fail and it it crushed it almost flat. So it's mm-hmm. very cool. So despite the fact that the myth was busted, the relationship between pressure, volume, and temperature is still demonstrated well with less industrial strength materials. And that's that is a chemistry thing. So, I mean, because, again, thanks to Charles' law, Boyle's law, Avogadro's law, gay lussacs law, you know,
1: chemistry. It's genetic but. molecular theory, but yeah.
0: Yeah, sure. You can understand and predict the behavior of gases at a molecular level, which is part of what went into this myth. Okay. The physics myth I want to talk about is what they call a thought experiment. So... The thought experiments are things that seem self-evident, but they actually take more work to prove than you might think. Mm-hmm. Um, not the one I'm not. I'm not talking about this one, but there was one where it's: Can you blow your own sail? Like, if you have a big enough fan and a big enough sail, can you make your own wind? And and you know, a lot of people say no because Newton's laws. Some people said yes, which mm-hmm. is right. So they did it. So, but the one I want to talk about is. Okay, think about this. A car is traveling at 50 miles per hour. Which would it do more damage to? Like, how would it become more damaged? By smashing into a brick wall, a stationary brick wall, going 50, that was when it was going 50 miles an hour, or a head-on collision with another car going 50 miles per hour. So, Jamie said in a demolition derby episode, that the second scenario, that of two 50-mile-per-hour cars crashing head-on, would be like one car hitting a wall at 100 miles per hour. But what's he right? Let's consider the physics. The car going 50 miles per hour that hits the wall has X amount of damage that is done to it instantly from going from 50 to zero. A car going 100 miles per hour that hits the same wall has twice the amount of damage because going twice as fast theoretically Mm -hmm. so adam and jamie created a rig that would test this concept because before you can go to the test track in i think it was new mexico and actually crash cars into walls at 100 miles an hour you got to kind of like do your homework so they used hammers set up like pendulums that when dropped would compress clay So they did compressions, like they pulled it back to 1x and then they doubled it to 2x and they let them go. And they had all of these little clay discs that were crushed. And the ones from the 2x were definitely more, definitely twice as smooshed as the ones from 1x. So that's Mm -hmm. great. That's kind of proof of concept there. But let's not forget Newton's third law. For every action, there is an equal and opposite emphasis on opposite reaction. Put that in your satchel. So they finish the small-scale test, and they have an expectation of what's going to happen when they go into the full-scale experiment. So Adam and Jamie get a car going 50 miles an hour at a test track and crash it into a wall, and they repeat it with a car going 100 miles an hour. So now they have wreckage from a 50-mile-per-hour crash and wreckage from a 100-mile-per-hour crash. Then they set up to crash two cars into each other, both going 50 miles per hour. So remember, if Jamie is right, the two cars will have damage like the 100 mile per hour car. If Newton is right, they'll have damage like the 50 mile per hour car. Surprise, surprise, turns out Newton is right. When a car going 50 miles per hour hits the wall, the wall has no change in momentum, and all that change goes straight to the car. The -hmm. wall is pushing back on the car with an equal force, and the car stops. The wall exerts a force equal to 50 miles per hour times the mass of the car, if you're working with equations, like force equals mass times acceleration. That's Newton's second law. That's the Mm -hmm. equation we're working with here. Now, that's the same for a car going 100 miles per hour, except now the wall is exerting a force of 100 miles per hour times the mass of the car, right? Mm -hmm. So when the two 50 mile per hour cars hit each other, people think that the applied force is doubled because the total miles per hour are doubled, but they're not. You have two forces. The force from car one is 50 miles per hour times mass. The force from car two is 50 miles per hour times mass. When these, and, and if the masses of the cars are the same, that means the forces are the same. So when these equal Forces are applied to each other. The cars stop at the point of collision, equal and opposite because one's going in one direction, the other one's going in the other direction. So where would we get that extra fifty miles per hour of mass to make it look like a hundred mile per hour collision? Nowhere. That's not how physics works. You can't.
1: You can't mm-hmm. just.
0: You know that's that's that literally breaks all the rules. So when Adam and Jamie did the actual crash, the damage to the cars looked exactly like the fifty mile per hour against a wall car not the 100 mile per hour. I actually show this episode in physics and physical science because it's a really, really good illustration of how Newton's laws work. So it's this, that's a really good episode. Hmm. Okay, uh, before we get into some of the special categories, I do want to talk about a math myth that was really fun and has practical applications for those of you who will ever be on a game show. Okay. It is called, among other things, the Monty Hall problem. Have you ever heard of this? no okay let's say you're a contestant on the game show let's make a deal hosted by monty hall you are given three doors and told that behind one is a fabulous prize a car or whatever i don't know if winning a car would be awesome appliances i would like appliances the other two have nothing behind them maybe like a goat i don't know you pick a door you have picked door number whatever the host then opens a door that does not have the prize. Is it statistically smarter to stick with your choice or change doors? Do you stick with door one or do you switch to door three? Whatever. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of probability that is allowed in pure math. This is mathematical prob- probability at its finest. I adore this problem. When Adam and Jamie tested it, They both had 50 tries at picking, so 100 trials. Okay. Adam would switch every time. Okay. And Jamie switched never. Okay. So which one do you think was
1: better, switching or not? I don't know. They were the same. That's a really good guess. Okay.
0: Adam, who switched every time. One over 80% of the time, I think. Hmm. Yeah, that which is huge. That's huge. But why does it work? Okay, you pick a random door and you have a one in three chance or one third chance of winning. And the other doors, it's the same. Each door has one third chance of winning. But now if you take away one of the doors, both of those one third chances of winning are now on that last door. So, suddenly, that door has a two-thirds chance of being a winner. Okay. Okay? If you don't understand why that is, if that explanation, that is as basic as I can make it, because what you need to do is look up Bayes' theorem, which you need a chalkboard for, and there's lots of letters. This is math with mostly letters. It's this whole big thing. But briefly... We've picked and then been shown that one of the remaining answers is the wrong answer, i.e., not the prize. The odds okay. that our pick is a winner has not changed. That door that we pick still has a one third chance. Okay. But since the prize can only either be behind our pick or behind the remaining door that's not revealed, the probability that it's behind the door that's not revealed takes on the probability from the other one that was revealed. So it's two thirds. Again check Bayes' theorem. You're making a face, and I understand your face. Lots of people out there are making a face right now. If you want to know why this is true, Google Monty Hall problem, check out Bayes' theorem, and there will be a full discussion of the whole idea. But the bottom line is, if you're on Let's Make a Deal and you have the option to switch after one of the doors is open, switch. Switch every time. You'll win that car, appliance, set, vacation, whatever. Hmm. So it was cool. Okay. All right, let's go through some of these smaller science categories. Again, want to mention some of these with some of the science because there's just so many, but these are really cool. Like, they did a lot of gun myths. I mean, like, a lot, a lot. One of the best was the bent barrel myth because you know how in cartoons Bugs Bunny will bend the barrel of the gun and it will change the direction of the bullet and it will still Mm -hmm. fire and all of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they tested if that was really true, and it is. They bend Mm -hmm. the barrel of a gun to 180 degrees. And the gun still fired a lethal bullet. Interesting. Along the same line as gun myths are explosive myths one of the most well-known myths they busted was the cement truck myth. Can you use dynamite to clean a cement truck in which the cement has dried? Well if it's a small amount or a thin layer then yes a stick and a half of dynamite will clean the truck without damaging the barrel (laughs) and like shovel it all out. But what if there's a slab of dynamite in there? Because that's actually what happened. They had to get two trucks because when they were filling the first one with concrete, someone left it on and got distracted and they didn't turn it off. So there was this like giant slab of concrete. And they said, well, can we use dynamite to remove the slab? Okay, there's no way to clean that out, Adam and Jamie discovered. But you can make a cement truck disappear with enough explosives. Hmm. I recommend Googling that footage because it's amazing. Uh, so yeah, it's, they, it, it, it vaporized. So Mm -hmm. with enough, again, with enough explosives. Uh, speaking of vehicles, the Mythbusters tested a ton of car myths, as I've mentioned. Some were, they were wrecking cars. Uh, one of my favorite myths was when Adam and JB essentially attached a cow catcher to the front of a giant truck and tried to plow through like 10 pairs of cars. Again, look at the footage because it's thrilling. It, It parts like the Red Sea um they reinforced the bumper of the truck to see if you could like push the cars out of your way if you don't like you don't want to sit in traffic or you might see in a movie but that didn't do anything they ran the truck into these lines these two lines of cars and you could only get through like four Hmm. not like the last one so you couldn't like drive away um so they decided to replicate the results like what would it take to plow through 16 cars that's when they attach the cow catcher they fabricated. And turns out if you've got one of those, you can absolutely plow through the cars. Again, party them like the Red Sea and keep on driving. Uh, but they didn't always destroy vehicles when they were doing their car myths. Sometimes they enhanced them. One of my favorite movie myths was, because I'm a James Bond fan, they replicated the famous ejector seat from the James Bond movie, mm-hmm. Goldfinger. If you'll recall, James Bond had an Aston Martin DB5 in that movie, and it had been fitted with all kinds of like gadgets and stuff, including an ejector seat, and a well-disguised one, even, capable of Mm -hmm. fooling any potentially suspicious minions that find their way into the car, as Mm -hmm. happens. So the Mythbusters got a car with a similar frame, because uh, destroying a DB5 was not in the budget, not going to happen, and they figured out how to conceal a pneumatic ejector seat in the front, and it worked. Hmm. And again, you can find video of that and you should because it's funny. Most of the video is just Adam laughing at the result because it is hilarious. (laughs) So those are some notable myths and the science that goes with them. And as I've talked through them, I didn't, as I said, I didn't have to do a lot of research to do my section because I've seen every episode and this stuff really sticks with you when you, when you see it. So let's take a break. And then I want to talk about the legacy and the way that the Mythbusters and their show changed science in U.S. culture and education. Okay. So in terms of Adam and Jamie and legacy and all that kind of stuff, you know, we, you know, what's their legacy? Are they badasses? I mean, obviously, yes, they're yes. badasses. They built literally one of everything. There is nothing that they have not built or tried or tested. They've put science to the test in thousands of ways. Um, And I like their different approaches to science, which led to excellent results for the show, all of that. But what I wanna talk about is how the show changed US culture. Um, Data-driven science has become very important, but since it's my show and I can editorialize if I want to, I do wanna point out that as much as people like data, they don't question where it came from, who is paying for it, or how it was acquired. As a case in point, acidic water. Right. Right. The MythBusters were transparent with all of that. They showed how many tests they did. They showed how they did the test. They showed the calculations needed to make it work. And they didn't have any agenda, except trying something out to see what happens. The show in general didn't have an agenda. mm mm-hmm. Like, the Discovery Channel just wanted to make an entertaining show, and it's incredibly entertaining, but the effects were more reaching, more far-reaching than just a fun show where stuff blows up, and I think we've proved that in these episodes. But way back in 2003 when the show started, science wasn't sexy or badass. There wasn't a lot of wild stuff going on at NASA. Only about 20 people of college freshmen were going into STEM fields. Um, And if if science was shown in the movies, this was the most interesting thing that I read. It was movies like The Matrix or even earlier Jurassic Park, which show science and technology leading to horrible, dangerous, and dystopian futures. Star Wars is science? Star Wars has science and technology, but let's not forget that the villain in that is essentially a cyborg. So... (laughs) That's not a glowing recommendation for science. In fact, the lightsaber, uh, the lightsaber and the Jedi religion is considered old-fashioned and is very much not technology. It's more mystical. So again, the message there is still not, not a glowing recommendation for science. <laughs> okay. But then Adam and Jamie literally exploded onto the scene with well-thought-out and interesting science. Like, Haven't you ever wondered, now this is an explosion base, but I have wondered this. Haven't you ever wondered if double dipping a chip in salsa really does spread germs? Is that really as gross as we think it is? We can actually test that. And the Mythbusters did. And turns out it's not actually as gross as you might think. You still shouldn't because it's bad manners, but it's (laughs) not the germiest thing you're going to do. Mythbusters was about the process of science and, like, in my opinion, science education in the United States has, for far too long, relied on facts being absorbed so you know an answer. Answers are for math. In math, there's always the right answer. That's the point. But science isn't necessarily as much about the result as it is about the process. Adam and Jamie showed a generation of kids watching the show that, yeah, we might be wrong about her hypotheses. And yeah, that didn't turn out how we would have liked to, but look at the journey. And because I'm telling you, at the end of every show, almost every show, Adam is like, wow, that shocked me. I didn't think that was going to happen at all. We were totally wrong about that. And he's not even mad about it. Being okay with being wrong about what you thought would happen is fine because it was about testing it, figuring out how to test what someone claims actually testing the claims and analyzing the results of those tests is actual science the answer can take second place to the process and this wasn't a process that an actor was reciting based on what a room full of writers had scripted Mm -hmm. because you get you get that in sci-fi movies right Mm. this was real people actually doing science Real science depends on the ability to experiment and to repeat the experiment to get consistent results. We say on this show all the time that unless it's observable and repeatable, it's not science. Mythbusters embody that. Plus, they showed how creative science can be. It makes you think and it makes you create and it makes you question. And that's kind of the essence of humanity. That's curiosity. Every single BA we've covered on this show has been the kind of person who said at some point. I wonder what would happen if i whatever i see this and i see the effect the mythbusters have had even on my kids when i was 10 years old it never occurred to anyone to pull kids aside give them a simple programming language a robot and some lego and then just let them try to make the robot do the stuff with the lego my son is part of a team who does exactly that hmm. it's it's first robotics and he's part of a team that does that Oh, and girls get to be a part of it too. One of the best programmers and first that I know is a girl. And again, we talk on this show all the time about how women have had to find ways and make their own ways to be a part of STEM because history is gross. But there were women on the show, on Mythbusters, Carrie making and doing stuff and still being feminine. Like you can be a brilliant scientist and have gorgeous red hair like Carrie did. You know, Adam and Jamie got the ball rolling and then they would get fan mail from people who would say i wouldn't be doing some science thing if not for you guys Hmm. so like and and so once they started that everybody kind of jumped on csi and forensic science got huge uh the movie the martian If any of you have seen The Martian, it's with Matt Damon. It's where he is stranded on Mars and has to survive Mm. until they come get him. And I didn't think I, listen, space movies stress me out. Two thumbs down. Two thumbs down. I cannot, I cannot, like Star Wars isn't a space movie because it's a Western and like it happens in space. But like the whole point of The Martian is that he was in a place that was actively trying to murder him. Much like if you're under the water, if you are under the water, the ocean wants to kill you. If you're in space, it's actively out to murder you. So
1: like, that's why we've talked about this. I don't, I don't like space and I don't like the sea. I'm terra firma, terra firma, period. Yes, emphasis on
0: firma. (laughs) So when this, so when this astronaut gets stranded on Mars after a catastrophic failure of this thing, et cetera, et cetera like i I was so stressed out. But his basic understanding of science and how to innovate things and make stuff that kind of it helped him survive. and it it was, I think Matt Damon called it a love letter to science to the science and and I'm like, yeah, like it is hmm. oh, and p s fifty percent of college freshmen now are entering STEM fields. So if you're looking for like data-driven, you know proof, it's up thirty. It's up by 30%, not up 30%, it's up by
1: 30%.
0: So science is still nerdy now. No one is going to deny that. But now being a nerd can be badass, which is like my favorite part. That's why we can do this podcast. Yeah. And ordinary people have been affected too. There was a woman who had her baby in the car and the weather was bad. They skidded off the road into a drainage ditch. And the woman said, she said, well, I watched this episode about pressure differential and when a car went underwater. And so I just waited as long as I could for the pressure to equalize. And I opened the door and I swam out and she and her baby survived. Hmm. And she said, she said the name, the words Mythbusters. I saw this episode of Mythbusters where, so like, you know, Hmm. so NASA engineers, medical researchers, chemists, others have all said, that Adam and Jamie showed them what science could be and it changed their life path. So the legacy that Adam and Jamie have left and in some ways are still leaving isn't just that explosions are cool because they are, but it's also that science is wild and unexpected and that you should and can be a part of it by just trying. So yeah, that's their for me that's their legacy and that's like what they've left for us. So i obviously love them i think what the work that they did is important i love their show i love everything about it you should go watch all the episodes right now like right now.
1: yeah i read a quote from jamie that said i would like to think we've done something and reached enough of the population to make people want to make thoughtful decisions and pay attention to science i and he has yeah yeah do you have anything to add i know
0: that was very thorough again we when we talked about doing this episode like i'm very passionate about this just because i like the show and i like what it did for science so this is kind of more my area of expertise than than yours but anything to add to that
1: no you kind of covered it i did so sources a bunch of websites yeah, I had a bunch it of. Me, it took me a while. I mean, honestly, sorry guys, I use Wikipedia for most of it because there's just not a lot else for me. So. Well, yeah, because they're still everybody except Grant is still alive. And right, still and then also like it's hard even to find because it's been, what, ten years since the show went off. Seven years since the show went off. Like, the articles are kind of, I'm like, you know, finding archive stuff. So.
0: Yeah. So there, there will be a a when one of the two of them dies. There will be a, a big like resurgence of info about yeah, them. But probably. again, they're they're alive and doing stuff and doing great stuff. Yeah. So so yeah, I had a bunch of websites too. And Adam's book, Every Tool is a Hammer. Mm. So so yeah. Well, we don't have anything to tease No. Well, next week because this is our last episode of the season. Again, if you're gonna miss us, then go over to Patreon because we've got stuff there. Next season. I don't even know how to talk about next season. I mean, we're going to be taking on two gigantic categories in the biochem and physics world. Big, 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 big episodes. Not as much interconnectedness as we had this season, but mm-hmm. some, some interesting stuff. A good BS episode, as usual. So famous names, you know, women, men all of that. So yeah, so look for us over the summer on Patreon, and then we will see you guys in September. But that's all I think I've got for today. Me too. All right, then until next time, live dangerously, do science.